Acts chapter 19. So, after uh, Paul had spent some time in Antioch, if you kind of remember that was his home base, if you will, he would often return to Antioch after his journeys. So after spending some time there, he actually, today, sets out on his third missionary journey, or actually, we're partway into that, but he set out on his third missionary journey. He began in Asia Minor, where he revisited some of the churches, which was his pattern, some of the churches that he had founded on his second missionary journey. He would have a habit to go back to re-encourage those disciples. That's the discipleship part of his travels, if you will. And then at the beginning of Acts chapter 19, he comes back to Ephesus where he had originally stopped briefly. He left Priscilla to Killa there. So he actually heads back to Ephesus. And then he ultimately stays there for three years. It's the longest stay we have at the Apostle Paul. He stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. But at Ephesus, he stayed there for what appears to be a full, solid three years. He spent the first three months there in the synagogue. If you look at chapter 19, verse 8... It says he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. He was reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. That was his pattern. He would start off at the synagogue, and so Paul did that when he was at Ephesus. So the first three months, he spent time in the synagogue there, reaching out to the Jews. That would, I would say, would be primarily his evangelistic phase. And then after being rejected by the Jews, which was fairly common, he took the disciples with him, and then he spent the next 21 months teaching and preaching in the school of Tyrannus, a Greek school. If you look at verses 9 and 10 there of chapter 19, but when some were becoming hardened in disobedience, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew and he took them away, took the disciples away, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul then took his disciples and he spent... The rest of his time there in Ephesus, primarily discipling and mentoring. Now, his final year at Ephesus was actually covered in verses 21 through um, chapter 20, verse 1. And that's where he basically confronts the idol-making silversmiths, and we have the what's called the Ephesus riot. And so we'll be getting to that next week. But after, you know, as we looked at verse 10 there, we see that Paul's time in Ephesus was tremendously effective and successful. If you look back at verse 10, it says, This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's a pretty phenomenal response. All those, he said, who lived in Asia heard the word, both Jews and Gentiles. That's a pretty phenomenal response. Ministry, especially if you think about it, it's in a time where they didn't have radio or television or newspapers or Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or any number of other social media things. News had to travel by way of mouth as people would travel. They didn't even have a mail system. You know, letters were carried by individuals. And sometimes it could take months for a letter to travel from one place to another. And so it's pretty amazing to think the impact that Paul had in Asia Minor over the three years that he spent there. But there's something interesting about this text today, and it actually forms the framework for what we're going to do. Verses 11 and then verse 20 serve as these bookends to our passage today. In fact, you could almost read them as one sentence. Verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. That's the introductory verse to our passage today. But then if you jump all the way down to verse 20, we have a summary verse. 
So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So if we put those two together, we basically have, and God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so the word of God was growing mightily and prevailing. That's the framework for our passage today. We're going to look at what's between there because it kind of explains what was happening. But before we do that, we have to understand something about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. It was a major center of travel and commerce. It was one of the most important seaports along what's called the Aegean Sea. It sat at the intersection of three major highways leading into Asia Minor. The highways that went north, south, and east going into Asia Minor. And right there at the center of all that, where those major highways intersected, was the city of Ephesus. It was home of one of the seven major wonders of the ancient world. I almost thought about asking the kids today, can you name all seven of them? It was the temple of Artemis. He was the Greek goddess of wild animals, or she was a Greek goddess of wild animals, hunt, vegetation, but also chastity. Some of you may know her by the name Diana which is what the Romans referred to her as. Oftentimes Roman and Greek mythology were intermixed. And so her Roman name was Diana. Her Greek name was Artemis. In fact, we're going to see this next week in our passage when a lot of the artisans and the idol worshippers begin to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Because that's where her temple was. Ephesus was also home to the largest theater in the world at the time. They could seat anywhere from 25,000 to 50,000 people, depending on what they were having at the stadium that day. In fact, that comes into play next week as we see that becomes the center of the riot in Ephesus where they drag some Christians into the theater and have to be calmed down before the city gets all inflamed. There's two more pieces of information about Ephesus that are especially important. The first is that Ephesus was the major capital city of Asia Minor when it came to magic. What I mean by magic here is sorcery. It was a city that was filled with Greek and Jewish sorcerers. Think of, you know, they didn't dress this way, but if you think about it today, with you know, the pointy hats and the, you know, the half moon and the stars on it, you know, and the little wand, that's sorcery. When we think of magic, we think of David Copperfield or, you know, any number of magicians. Well, similar but not the same. They were actually sorcerers, but when you hear me use the word magic today, that's what I'm going to be referring to because that's what it was called back then. So the city was actually considered probably the capital of sorcery and magicians back in the day of Paul and the area of Asia Minor. So that's the first thing we need to really understand about this because it's going to play into our text. The second is related to that, and that's Ephesus was also known for its supernatural or demonic activity. The two go hand in hand, things like demon possession and exorcisms. Because the magicians, the sorcerers, what they would do is they would perform exorcisms. They would cast out demons. That was the premise of their business, was confronting demonic and supernatural sources. So these two go hand in hand, magic or sorcery and the supernatural. They're intertwined. The goal of the magicians was to determine whether good or bad spirits... And then they would basically use their knowledge of these good and bad spirits to come up with incantations and formulas and amulets, little things they would hold, and even portions, or I'm sorry, potions that they would use to manipulate the gods or spirits into doing their will. And so an example might be somebody who's demon-possessed and a sorcerer would be called in and he would discern what kind of spirit this was and then he would use his potions or his amulet, depending on what the spirit was, to then control that spirit. And that's what was going on. And that's going to actually come into play in our text today. This was Ephesus. This is what Ephesus was known for. What Luke is going to present in the passage today is an epic battle. This is kind of the theme 
between God with a big letter G and God's with a small letter G and then between magic and the miraculous. In other words, as one commentator wrote, Luke is going to, provide, or going to prove to us that the gospel can succeed in Ephesus. If that's the case, it can succeed anywhere. Because Ephesus was a dark place. And so we're going to see sort of this epic battle play out today. Let's look at the first few verses, starting in verse 11. We're going to read 11 through 13. It says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the disease left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted to name over those, those who had evil spirits, in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. So the first thing I want us to see here is that the Lord used Paul to perform these incredible, I'm going to call them extraordinary miracles. Luke begins by declaring that it wasn't Paul, though, who actually did these, but it was God himself. Notice Paul, or Luke says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Saul. It doesn't say Saul was performing extraordinary miracles by God. Luke is being very deliberate here to assign these things to God. God was the one doing the miracles. And that's critical in our text because there's going to be a contrast here shortly. Paul was simply the avenue through which God was working. All the glory went to God for this. And so that's Luke's point. It's important because it was in direct contrast to the magicians that Paul's going to be seeing here, or that we're going to be seeing here in a moment. In magic, the magician manipulated the gods or spirits through their spells or their portions or potions or anything else, their incantations. They would manipulate the spirits. They were the ones who received glory for it, recognition for it. They were the ones to be seen as wielding the power. But here Luke declares that it was God who was in charge. He was the one who got the credit. He was the one that was performing the miracles. Paul was simply the avenue through which it was happening. Very different. You know, it's interesting. We see that in some segments of Christianity too with false prophets and charlatans that perform or perform faux miracles and faux healings. You know, they'll give credit to God in some respects, right? But you know, as you watch them prance around on stage and send the bucket around and do their things, that really, the glory goes to them, right? At least that seems to be the intent. They use that to build their big ministries and shake down people. Much what we see in Ephesus with these charlatans that we're going to see in a minute. So Luke begins by declaring that it wasn't Paul who was performing the miracles, it was God who was doing the work. He gets all the credit. Luke also refers to the miracles God was performing through Paul as extraordinary. Again, I like to say it as extraordinary. More literally, Luke says, and he does this throughout the book, they weren't so common works of power. (laughs) Remember how I said Luke has a tendency to understate? You know, There weren't so few people there. That was the way Luke did it. And here he says, Paul was performing, that God was performing not so common works. In other words, they weren't your everyday run-of-the-mill miracles that were taking place. We see what he means next. If we look at verse 12, it says, 
that the handkerchiefs or aprons were even being carried from his body to the sick. And the disease left them, the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Now these handkerchiefs that he's referring to were the headbands that they would wear, much like you know, we might wear them to keep sweat out of our eyes. Um, they did the same thing. And that's the handkerchief. The um, aprons were what they wore around the waist, much like we would think of an apron today. And think about this. It would make sense that Paul might have an apron because he was a tent maker. He worked with his hands. And so as you would work, you'd want to be able to wipe them off. You know, um, My wife, Amy, wears an apron even while she eats. You know, She's got her chef beauty apron that she has at the house. And when she begins to work in the kitchen, she puts that on to protect the clothes. And that's exactly what this apron would have been. And so what would happen here is Luke tells us that they would carry these aprons and these handkerchiefs that Paul had worn and they would take them out to the sick and the demon possessed and they would heal them or the demons would leave them. Now the NASB simply says that they were carried from the body, presumably of Paul, to the sick. A more literal translation is that these things had touched the skin of Paul. So what they were doing is they were taking that, that, that um, headband that had been on his forehead or where his hands had touched and rubbed on, the, on his apron and they would then take that out to the sick and the demon possessed and it would heal him. So not only was Paul performing a variety of miracles, God doing it through him, but the disciples were extending that ministry by taking the cloths that had touched his skin out. And we saw miracles happening there as well. Again, God doing them through those objects. Now it's important, I think, to see here that it wasn't Paul who was out there hawking his headbands and his aprons. He wasn't sitting in front of the screen saying, call in and I'll send you one of my special prayer cloths. And I think I might have mentioned to you in the past that when I was in college, there was a fairly famous TV evangelist named Robert Tilton. I would go home from, I was a brand new Christian at the time, and I would go home in this, in, you know, Christmas break or summer break for a couple of days, and um, my mom and I, I think, watched a couple of his shows because I found him, I would watch it for the comedic value. I was a fairly new Christian at the time, wasn't very well developed in the theology, but there was enough that I knew to think, this guy is a charlatan. And his show was an hour long, and you could just time it down to the minute when he would do certain things, including begging people to send in their money. But he would always give away trinkets. One of them was a prayer cloth that he would touch on the show. I've touched every one of these, and he would send it out to you. So one day, me and a couple of my college buddies decided to reach out to his ministry, send him a letter, you know, and see what he would send us. And he sent us a poster. And it was a poster of him with his hand up, and we put it up on our refrigerator. And every morning you were supposed to get up, and because he had touched the poster, you were supposed to go up and place your hand on his hand on your refrigerator, and you would receive a blessing. And obviously we were doing this in mockery. Paul wasn't doing that. Paul wasn't sending out his... It wasn't like he you know, grabbed a stack, had boxes of aprons and boxes of you know, handkerchiefs and he would rub them on his forehead and give them out and they would take them out. That's not at all what we have here. Paul wasn't even really involved most likely. They were probably simply taking those things out. So Paul wasn't out there hawking this stuff. It's not what you see here. But it was happening. 
And it's not presented in a way that says there's anything wrong with it. Luke makes it pretty clear that these aprons and these handkerchiefs, when they were taken out, healed people. Now, that's certainly unusual, and it's not normative. There's only two other examples, maybe three, that we see in the entire New Testament where we see anything similar to this. The first one was in Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 6, verse 56, where people were healed just by touching Jesus' garment. It wasn't power in the garment, it was their faith that was healing them. The second is a woman who is bleeding, if you remember, hemorrhaging, Luke chapter 8, verse 44, where she reaches out and touches Jesus' garment, and Jesus felt an element of the Holy Spirit, power, sort of transfer, if you will. She was healed. Another third possibility, and this is a little shaky, I'll say, in Acts chapter 5, it says that people would take their sick and the demon-possessed and lay him out in the street as Peter would walk by, just hoping that his shadow would fall upon them and they would be healed. The text doesn't tell us they were healed. It's possible they were. But that would be the maybe the third example of where, where we have this unusual healings or demon, you know, these um, exorcisms that would take place outside of Paul or Peter or somebody else performing it, whether it's the handkerchiefs or the aprons or, in the case of Peter's shadow. So those things are certainly unusual, but we can't discredit them or discount them. But because they're unusual and they're not normative in the Scripture, we also can't say that that's something we should be practicing today. You're not going to find me hand out, you know, my handkerchief so you can go and try to heal somebody. But the question that I'm going to ask is, why would God use such extraordinary means? This is a very unusual thing in the book. Why might he have done that? Um, Luke doesn't really tell us why, so we've got some speculation here. One suggestion offered by um, some very good scholars is that it might have had something to do with the prevalence of magic in Ephesus. These magicians often would use amulets and objects. They would, little statues or, or little trinkets that they would use when they would perform their services. And what that does to a community or what that does to a culture is they become accustomed to the way things are done. And sometimes Jesus or the disciples would take advantage of those things. Meaning not necessarily the wickedness of those things, but rather would do things in a way that the culture understood. And so some have argued that, well, God used the handkerchiefs and the aprons because that communicated something to that culture because the magicians did similar things. Now, I don't necessarily accept or reject that, but I I can't completely throw it out because as a church, we should sometimes use things that the culture is comfortable with. For instance, the the music we do here, we don't stick to all a cappella hymns like the church might have done in Jesus' day. We'll use modern forms of music and stuff. Why? Because it's what we're comfortable in and with. We use a modern style of oration. What I'm doing right here, right now, is common to our culture. Okay? I'm not raising my hand up and, you know, doing what Paul might have done and formatting it in Greek oration style like Paul did because you guys would look at me like I'm some kind of nut. Okay? So we have a tendency to sometimes use things from the culture that people are familiar with. And you can imagine how maybe when somebody is there and they're, they're demon-possessed or they're sick and a disciple shows up and says, this was Paul's handkerchief. And they take that and they rest that on their forehead. Why that individual might, from that, believe 
because Paul was a representative of God, that this might heal us. This might heal us. Okay, that's one possibility. Again, I can't accept or reject it necessarily, but I can understand the reasoning behind it. It might have been something as simple as God simply used it to authenticate Paul as a messenger and it extended Paul's ministry. Meaning, Paul could only be in one place at one time. And this might have been a way that God could impact that culture significantly when it is steeped so staunchly in magic and sorcery and demon possession that it might have simply been God's way of extending Paul's reach out to the masses through those apostles. Whatever it is, it's unusual, but it's something God clearly did, and it was extraordinary. Imagine if that were to happen here to us today and we couldn't deny that it was reality. So for whatever reason, God chose to do extraordinary things. And this is one example. Again, it doesn't make it normative. There are some things in the scriptures that are prescriptive and there are others that are descriptive. So when we see people today hawking, in fact, I pulled up a video, I was going to show it to you guys today about a guy doing just that. A televangelist hawking his prayer cloth and he uses Paul's example here as proof that he could do it and if you just touch that cloth you'll be healed of all kinds of sicknesses and disease as long as you write him a check for 1995 and send it in. You know, so this is probably more prescriptive, I mean descriptive than prescriptive for us. It's not normally the way that God worked. It's not normally the way that he works today. Can he heal? Absolutely. But it's unlikely he's calling us to send out people with prayer cloths and aprons that have been touched by your favorite pastor or teacher. But nonetheless, this was extraordinary. And it makes sense because, again, confronting this culture and society, God did it in a big way. Now, some Jewish exorcists see this. And they try to mimic Paul's miracles, but with unexpected and devastating consequences. Chapter 19, verses 14 through 16. Read along with me. It says, Seven sons of Sceva, Jewish priest, high priest, or Jewish chief priest, I'm sorry, were doing this. And when the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now when it says that they were doing this, that's a reference back to verse 13, that they were actually going around now and they were saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. These people were charlatans. It was common in the ancient Near East that they would go out they would perform these magical ceremonies. And these are Jewish priests that are doing it. They were Greeks and Jews that were doing this in Ephesus. This focus here is on these Jewish priests. Even though the Old Testament law forbid sorcery, they did it anyway. And that's what we have here. These seven sons of Siva, they would, me, they would go out and they would perform these sorcery Things usually what they would do is they would invoke certain Jewish names for Yahweh. And so it appears that they wouldn't invoke the pagan gods when they would do it, but they would still perform sorcery, but they would use different names for, for God in some respects. Well, they see what Paul is doing, and they're like, huh, this is pretty remarkable. 
We'll do it too. So they started going out and they're saying, you know, when they would start to try to cast out demons or heal people who were sick, they would start invoking the name of Jesus. And I love the way they do it there. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. What a dead giveaway there, isn't it? We don't know this guy. So they're trying to piggyback on Paul's success, you know? Imagine if I went out and said, I heal you in the name of Robert Tilton, you know? Now, obviously after seeing this, they started going out and doing it. What's ironic about this is they had rejected Paul's gospel, but they wanted the power that Paul had. Obviously quite ironic. Remember Simon the Magician? Um, he did something similar in Acts chapter 8. He sees, he sees that the Holy Spirit is laid upon certain individuals by the hands of Peter. The text, you know, indicates that he wanted that power, but he didn't want Christ. He was a charlatan. He just wanted to enhance his business. This is one more thing I can add to my little repertoire of tricks. But much like Simon, these Jewish exorcists see Jesus simply as a means to further their business. They want the power of Jesus without the relationship of Jesus. So these guys go out. If we ever saw Luke's sense of humor, it's in this passage. If I was a writer for SNL, Saturday Night Live, I would write a skit on this. Look at verse 15 and 16 again. They go out, they basically try to attempt to command the spirit to come out of some demon-possessed individual. Look at how the spirit responds. First off, as he responds with a rebuke, verse 15. I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? You can almost hear how he might respond. It's obviously a rhetorical question. He was aware of who Jesus was. We see that with the demons elsewhere. It's impossible for them not to know who the Son of God is. The demon recognizes Paul. I assume that's probably the case because all of his friends had been cast out by Paul. But these guys? He knew who they were. But his question is rhetorical in nature and basically meant, you guys are nothing. I know Jesus is somebody. I know Paul is somebody. But you clowns, are nobody. Who are you to call me out to do anything? Second thing he does, look at verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I think, I don't know if he was attempting, Luke was attempting to be humorous here or not. But I can't help but laugh a little bit at it because basically you see this guy. This Remember, this is one dude on seven. And it says he leaps on them. He doesn't just, you know, freak them out a little bit. He literally jumps at them. And as one translation says, beat them all into submission. This is a beatdown. He beats them so severely that they literally have to run away, leaving their clothes behind, which means he stripped off their clothes too. And it says that they are naked and wounded. Bruises, bloodied. I think they might have been a little shocked. What went wrong? Paul does it. 
what went wrong? I would imagine that one of their first thoughts was maybe we got the formula wrong. You know? Because remember, they're used to using incantations and all kinds of stuff, you know? And isn't that the first response? You don't just go, oh, and see the truth immediately. You know, how many times have we seen false teachers and false preachers confronted and they just don't get the fact that what you're doing is untruthful, it's sin. It's always some other excuse, somebody else's fault, somebody else's problem. Have we seen that with politicians recently? You know, you can drop the truth in front of them, boom, and they don't just reject it, they can't even see it. And so I would imagine that these Jewish sorcerers here are thinking, who probably didn't wave the wand magically enough or we didn't use the right incantations or maybe we didn't capitalize Jesus, whatever it is, you know. Instead of realizing that, no, it's that you want to have the power of Christ, but you've rejected Paul's gospel. You've rejected Christ. There's no power in just the name by itself. It's the relationship with that name. And so they're counterfeiters here. They're fake. They want the power of Jesus, but they don't want Jesus. Do you think we see that in our culture and society today? Do you think the world wants answers to some of the problems and the things that we see and we're dropping it right in front of them? But they reject it? No, it must be something else. You know, we can look at all kinds of emotional, psychological issues and sometimes there's medical reasons behind those things, but oftentimes they're just life and they're bad choices too. And it's amazing how you maybe point that out. Start living your life like God says you should live your life and things can get better. And No, it can't be that. It's got to be something else. They want the solutions that God has offered, but they don't want it the way God has offered it. Same thing with these men. Let's go on. What happens as a result of this? Verses 17 through 19. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, or was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver." So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. The last thing I want to point out here is that word of this event spread and multitudes of magicians, sorcerers, repented and believed in Christ. I think about these poor guys here. Not only did they get beaten up, have to run away naked and bruised and bloodied, but everybody knew about it, it says. It had become known to all, both Jews and... Can you imagine? It's bad enough that you just got whooped. But now you walk around the city and people go, aren't those the seven guys that got beat up by the one guy? Aren't they the guys that ran away naked? It's embarrassing enough. But as a result of this, two things happened. The first, it says, fear fell upon them, meaning the Jews and the Greeks in the area, and the Lord Jesus, or the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Now this could be actual fear when it says that fear fell upon them. Remember when Jesus cast out legion 
and the pigs ran over the cliff. The whole area was so freaked out and afraid that they basically begged him to leave. That was fear. This could be fear that he's talking about here, but probably not because it also says that the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. That's a positive thing. It's a, so it, it seems to suggest that the fear they had, the fear that came upon them, was a sense of awe and respect for the name of Jesus. And as a result of that, they began to magnify it. That means that they praised it. They extolled it. People began to look favorably upon Christ, the one that Paul had been preaching. That was the response. When people saw and heard about these priests, these um, Jewish faux prophets and, and other things attempting to cast out demons by the name of Jesus and got themselves beat, people responded to, there's something about Jesus and the power of Jesus. And it probably likely reflected very positively upon Paul because people began to see, oh, Paul's got the real Jesus. And as a result, they began to extol and to magnify and talk positively about Jesus Christ and his name, which is a reference to his reputation. People began to think positively about Christ as a result of this. The second thing that happened is that multitudes of magicians now actually believed and were led to confession and repentance. I want you to see something here. That phrase, those who believed, is actually in a particular tense in Greek that suggests that they had believed prior to the events that we see in the seven sons of Sceva but that they hadn't given up the practice of sorcery yet. Now, we may struggle with that a little bit, but remember, how many of you came to Christ a little bit later in life and you had to learn to put off the old man and put on the new? When I got saved, all of the nasty practices I had been involved with just didn't stop all of a sudden. In fact, I had been saved for at least a few weeks before I even realized how awesome it was. Because remember, I was depressed and struggling, suicidal in my thinking, I asked Christ to come into my life to help me with that. But it wasn't until even weeks later that all of a sudden I kind of went, wow, there is more to this. And I began to learn that what Christ expected of me was not just faith in Him, but now learning to walk in the right relationship with Him. And so I began to learn to put off the old man, those old behaviors, those old things. And in many respects, I still find old things i got to put off. And so what we find here, just in the words that that Luke uses here alone, that these individuals who had confessed or who had placed their trust in Christ were now coming forward and admitting and confessing the sins and repenting of their sorcery and of their magic. In other words, this catalyst of watching these seven sons here and what happened with them, that actually did serve as a catalyst for public confession now for the magicians that had looked to Christ to now come forward and to say we're going to abandon our practices too. This is really rather staggering. They brought their books, their magic potions, their study guides, their textbooks. They brought them into the public center They began to burn them and make it a public event. The amount of money that Luke gives here is that the books amounted to 50,000 pieces of silver. 
I'm going to try to put that in perspective for us here. One piece of silver, a Roman denarius, was equivalent to one day's wage for the average worker. So if you think about that, if it's one day's wage, it means that there was 50,000 pieces of silver that equates to 50,000 days of work. Now, books in the first century were not inexpensive, as Luke would say. Understatement, right? They had to be handmade, handwritten. Hand- they didn't have printing presses. Even the bind had to be bound by hand. They were expensive. Estimates that I've seen suggest that books of this time probably averaged between anywhere between one and five days wages just to buy a single book. That means that we're probably looking at anywhere between 10 and 50,000 books that were brought into the center of the city and burned. Let's look at this another way. They say the average wage today for the average American is about $200 a day. That basically is equivalent of $10 million worth of books. What would that look like here today? $10 million worth of books, all piled in the center. We couldn't do that here. Had to take it out the street. Luke doesn't tell us how many magicians this was. But likely at least a thousand, maybe as many as ten thousand, based on the number of books that were involved and everything else. So thousands of these sorcerers, Jewish sorcerers, and likely even Greek sorcerers, because of what God had been doing through the hands of Paul, repent. So much so that they basically give up their careers to now come to Christ. Pretty remarkable. What's the conclusion on all this stuff? What are some of the takeaways we can look at? As I mentioned, the point that Luke has in this text today appears to be found in our two bookends to our passage. Remember verse 11 says that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And then verse 20, so that the word of God was growing mightily and prevailing. That's exactly what we see here. I love the fact that he uses the word prevailing there, and that's our first takeaway. Our faith not only stands in opposition to popular religious beliefs and practices of the world around us today, but it prevails against them. Ephesus was filled not only with Greco-Roman idolatry, but mysticism, magic, demonic activity. It was a stronghold for that. But just after three years, God's word in the name of Jesus spread like wildfire throughout Ephesus because of Paul's ministry there and the extraordinary miracles that God was performing through him. It was a big area. Includes all of Asia Minor. whole thing is turned upside down in many respects. Paul's ministry had such a major impact at Ephesus that the prosperity of at least two trades were threatened. One of them was this trade of sorcery. The second we're going to see next week, which was idol-making. The idol-makers, the silversmiths, and those who made idols were so concerned that Paul's ministry was having a negative impact on their business and that it was bringing disrepute to their business, making their business look bad, that they tried to do something about it by causing a riot in the city. And so Paul's ministry, what God had done through him, through these miracles, impacted not just the culture, but impacted financial industry in that city. That's a significant 
impact. So the gospel prevailed over the things that were happening. You know, that's really the way it ought to be when we preach the gospel. Now, you've probably heard me allude to or state in the past that we're not called to redeem culture and society. We're not called to change culture and society. We're called to lead people to Jesus Christ. That can have an impact on culture and society. There's no question about it. But that's not our goal. You know, our goal is not to make Columbus a great shiny city on a hill, Christian city, so we all can live life happy and merrily here. It's to see people come to Jesus Christ. I believe that when Paul went into Ephesus, his goal wasn't to transform Ephesus into a Christian city, but rather to lead people to Christ. But it can have a transforming impact. But even if it doesn't have a visual impact in changing culture and society completely, the gospel still prevails. Even if these two industries weren't radically changed, thousands of Jewish sorcerers came to Christ and the gospel prevailed over them. So even in the worst of cultures, a place like Ephesus, preaching the gospel can change lives. No matter where it's at. We can think of places like China, we can think of places like North Korea, we can think of places in Africa and the Middle East where persecution has risen, risen staggeringly, and yet the church is growing faster there than it is in any other places in the world. Why? Because the gospel confronts the culture and society, but it will always prevail. It may not change the society, but it will change lives within that society. And that's exactly what we see here now. In Paul's case, again, we do see an impact on the culture. It didn't change Ephesus as a whole drastically, but it did change lives because the gospel prevails. So the gospel not only confronts, but it prevails. That's the promise we've been given. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church, and what will not stand against it? Gates of hell. Why? Because the gospel prevails. That's motivation for us. No matter what we face here, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how many rights they take away from us, no matter how much the canceled culture tries to shut us up, if we simply keep preaching the gospel, keep giving people answers to the hope that we have, it will prevail. People will get saved. That's the promise made to us. Our culture may continue to still go down the toilet. But we have seen in areas of our culture, think about where we are with abortion today. Um, you know, we're on the cusp here of the Supreme Court, possibly as early as tomorrow, ruling on the Texas abortion law. There's a possibility, I mean, just in Texas alone in the last, what, since I think September 1st, abortions have been cut in half in Texas. Who have been the ones who have stood up for life? It's an element of our Christian message, is it not? So it can have an impact on culture and society. That's if make it reversed all. We don't know, but the reality of it is we just simply need to keep preaching the gospel, folks, because the gospel prevails. Second takeaway, some, many, try to have all the benefits of Jesus without knowing him. We live in a culture and society where people will, con- will try to provide all kinds of other solutions and other ways to deal with issues and problems and they'll have all their special tricks of doing it or solutions to it, but the reality of it is um, it's all fake. 
Just like these Jewish sorcerers tried to mimic the power of Christ without Christ, it couldn't happen. And we're going to see that in our culture and society. We've got all kinds of false religions, false beliefs, false hope. You know, Think about the ways right now within our culture and society that they're trying to address issues of homosexuality and LGBT issues, what the world's answers to that are. Well, we'll just embrace it. You know, what about issues of racism or other things? Well, everybody's racist and they got all these ways of trying to counteract that and none of this stuff, none of it ultimately provides answers that will make a difference. If anything, it'll make it worse. You know, teenage sexuality and all that kind of stuff, the answer is, well, we'll just hand out, we'll just teach. That stuff doesn't do anything except hurt and harm. The world wants the solutions that we have in Christ, but they don't want Christ. They try to mimic the things that we can offer in Christ. Just like the seven sons of Sceva tried to mimic what Paul was offering in Christ, but they didn't want Christ. That's our world we live in. What's the third takeaway? Very simple, Jesus Christ is the only and the true source of transformation and redemption. And that's what we find here. These Jewish magicians and exorcists, they were running around claiming to heal the sick and cast out demons, and the idol makers are promoting their false religions. It is all just a money-making scam. But what happens when Jesus Christ shows up in Ephesus? What happens when God decides to show the power of Christ through the hands of Paul? and authenticates the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, people really get healed. Demons really got cast out. People's lives are changed. Sorcerers and those who are disturbing the culture and society, causing much of the pain and everything else, get saved, repent. Can you imagine the statement that must have made as you see thousands and thousands of sorcerers all abandoning their trades and it says they were revealing their secrets telling people this is all a sham all because of the power of Christ and the transforming effect of Christ we're living in crazy times right now with ever increasing wickedness, violence hatred, division immoralities the world has all kinds of solutions for it but the real solution is Christ we're the only ones that offer many hope folks Call it arrogant, call it proud. We are the only ones that have the answer. And it's found in Christ. If we ever had any motivation to stand up and to continue preaching the gospel, continue identify, identifying ourselves as lovers of Christ, it's now. Because the world around us definitely needs the transformation that's only available in Christ. Not just for the here and now. That's all I've really addressed is the here and now, but the reality of it is there's a whole eternal future that is more significant than what we see happening here right now. And only Christ can offer hope in this life, but also the life to come.